Among the many human enigmas that exist within this complex structure of reality is our potential to think and function normally, even with very little brain matter. If the brain is still thought to be chiefly responsible for producing awareness, then how could this be so? Groundbreaking physicist and consciousness explorer Nassim Haramein sat down with me to explain just what might make this possible. If thinking and functioning without a brain, so to speak, is happening, which he contends is far more common than we know, then just what is truly driving our ability to navigate the wheel of life? Nassim begins by describing one mystifying account of a gentleman in Paris who, after suffering injuries in an automobile accident, had tests that revealed he had minimal brain matter, but still managed to think and function quite normally. Listen to what he had to say. Tell me about the gentleman. Was it Paris? Was it actually Paris? Or, uh, or I think it was in the surroundings of Paris or something. Okay. Yeah, yeah. What happened to him? Um, so this French uh, person that was, uh, you know, a normal person that functioned in the society normally, um, who, who got in a car accident and uh, got bumped on the head pretty hard. And so, of course, when they brought him to the hospital, you know, after whiplash and all this, they did the procedures, the typical procedures where they do MRIs and x-rays and all this. And when they x-rayed his head, they found that there was no brain, meaning or very little brain, meaning it's... Meaning activity or the physical no, matter no, no, itself? No, not brain activity. The gray matter was missing uh, completely. Uh, that is, there was um, something that less than 10% of the gray matter remaining, everything else was gone, and so mostly water in 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 the skull, mm. and um, very little activity, uh, very little brain matter, and uh, that made it. You know, it's actually not that unusual. <laughs> it's remarkable. It's happened many times in history uh, that people have been found to have very little gray matter, mostly water up there, and to be functioning absolutely normally. Um, in fact, they did IQ test on the gentleman, and he was found to have an IQ just a little bit less than average, but nothing unusual. Nominal, yeah. Yeah, okay. it was nominal. And, you know, I mean, as well, you got to think about the validity of IQ tests. You know, right. I have my issues with that because, you know, actually the IQ tests that were given to Einstein, some of them... I want to talk about Einstein. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. You know, showed that Einstein had a lower IQ than the average. And so I, you know, <laughs> would debate that. But um, so it... it uh, it really is uh, remarkable because it's saying something very profound about the about consciousness, about the seat of consciousness. Right. Meaning that it's not necessarily a neuronic activity. It's not necessarily neurons firing that is making the event of consciousness what it is. Um, and in fact, it's showing that water is not just a um, a background neutral medium as described in typical biology, but that water is actually probably the the medium that is um, transmitting and receiving information mm -hmm. and um, you know and you when you think about it, if life came out of water emerged from water, then water is something 
more than just some neutral background Absolutely. that you can ignore, right? Well, I think we know that with the, with the stellar work of uh, Masito Emoto, as right. well as I believe David Sarita uh, uh, did some, some work in his quantum project, that water having memory has the ability to be structured and you know we can kind of take this as a syllogism that you know if in fact we are made up primarily of water and there's we're finding out that in many cases there's gray matter in the brain missing that water's maybe not even taking over the job but it's revealing that it's doing the job of sending and receiving information anyway right right um, <clears throat> well the thing is is um, you know the work of a Nobel Prize winner uh, Montagnier Dr. Montagnier shows that actually uh, water can hold the information of a DNA strand without the DNA being in there. Um, so that, and, and then just recently, and this is really exciting, um, the uh, Science Academies published papers uh, reporting on measurements where they can actually see that water is modulating the DNA zipping and unzipping, not the DNA modulating the water, meaning that the, the, the water is pulsing the DNA and then the DNA does its thing, showing that the information is actually coming from the water, mm -hmm. not from the DNA. Not from the DNA. Yeah, and so that actually what packs, well, that makes sense too, because I've been saying this for 25 years. The DNA strand without the water molecule packing around it falls apart. Mm -hmm. It's the water that's holding the information, not the DNA. The DNA is just expressing the information that's in the water structure. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's why life emerges from, from water. Interesting. So it really kind of, because then you, you got to ask the next question, well, it, where is the water getting its information? So now you're getting down to the molecules that makes up the water, which are tetrahedral molecules. Like mm -hmm. now you have geometry, geometry involved. Geometry involved, absolutely. And, 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 and you have uh, hydrogen and oxygen, right? Uh, which are like, I mean, certainly a hydrogen is base element of, of the universe. Um, it's everywhere, right? It's a large portion of our universe. And, um, and, you, and so then you've got to wonder where is the information coming from in these atoms? Like why, what are these bond angles doing? How do they get there? How do they know to do what they're doing? And that's where it leads directly to the holographic um, universal solution. We have to talk about that because mm. I think, look, the whole holographic principle is, my audience members know that I discuss that frequently. I'm a huge fan of David Baum and I think the holographic universe by Michael Talbot really blew the lid open on this. Mm -hmm. It seems that the holographic model, again, is ubiquitous in all of these discussions. I mean, it was Carl Prebrim, the neuroscientist who, who felt that the brain itself was holographic, but now we're mm. talking about perhaps every cell of the body, water included, and beyond. Right, right? absolutely, yeah. Right. I, and certainly the, the concept of a holographic brain leads to the concept of a holographic antenna, which is, or at least a, a fractal antenna, um, and uh, which, you know, I, I'm happy to say that I, I just published papers in biophysics for the first time. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, I, know. I usually write physics, but I wrote a paper on, in biophysics because I felt like it's so important that people start discussing the, 
the source of consciousness because mm-hmm. it, it ha- it's part of the equation, if not the main equation, right? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so, um, so I published this paper with um, the help of uh, Dr. Uh, Brown, a biophysicist, and, and Dr. Val Baker, an astrophysicist. And it just passed peer review. It's in, it's in uh, the Journal of Neuroquantology. Uh-huh. And basically, um, we're saying in this paper, in layman's terms, that um, not in the paper, but I, I'm just going to say it. Distill it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that basically that consciousness is not an epiphenomena of the brain, kind of hallucinating this reality, but that um, that it is an interaction of the brain and the rest of the body, but as but mostly actually the connective tissue, like the meningene inside the, the skull, that um, interacts as an antenna with this field of information, and um, such as that it is, the whole body becomes like a, a transceiver, a, a, mm-hmm. an antenna, that's capturing information from a quantum field of interaction that's occurring at the, to- at the atomic level mm-hmm. and that's transmitted through the water molecules into the biological structure um, you know, at the different scales but that emerge from the quantum fluctuations of the structure of space-time itself so that consciousness is not something inside of you consciousness is something that you're interacting a field that that is inside of you and outside of you and that you're interacting with articulate beautifully said in layman's terms that was Perfectly articulate and assembled. Thank you, know, you. So many thoughts I have, and I'm jumping around here, but I want to get to this, and then I'd love if you can maybe tell us a few, give us a few more examples of people operating virtually without, or literally without brain matter. But I'm going to jump to this question because I think it's apropos. So we, in modern society at least, we've assigned so much, uh, relegated so much to the brain in terms of associating one's intelligence. We can talk about Einstein and uh, you know, classical science believes that it was the brain so much so that they saved his brain after he he died, and and that the source of his information was coming from the brain. Well, I dare say he was really a, an example of someone who was tapping into non-local consciousness just by virtue of the stories he told. Right. But but that's an aside. Maybe we can elaborate on that later. But the other question I have is, if the brain is not the source of consciousness, and I agree, and I think a lot in our audience would too, that there's something much bigger going on, then what does, what purpose does the brain serve? Is it a decoder of 3D reality? (laughs) A decoder? Right. What what do you think about that? Uh, Yeah, I agree. I think that the brain is a secondary effect. You know, is it the epiphenomenon? Right. Well, no. Yeah, I just think that it's a secondary effect where you know, like you, the the information comes in at a certain frequency, and then it's got to be downstepped, you know, through the fractal antenna to um, to uh, frequencies in which it can interact with the biological structure. Mm-hmm. And and then can be processed by the biological structure into the nervous system. So it's basically a way to take the information from the quantum state, you know, which is emerging through the water structure right. and the connective tissues into, uh, you know, and and transferring the information into the nervous system 
to activate the biological entity. And so, so you can think of it as the connector, you know, um, but not necessarily where the uh, event of consciousness is happening. You can't just assign, you know, potassium sodium exchange, like having a little spark between neurons as being conscious, like it doesn't mm -hmm. add up, like it, I can make sparks all day, you know, using electricity, I'm not gonna get consciousness just emerging because I'm making sparks, you know, sparks doesn't necessarily mean right, right. consciousness, right. so, right. so um, I, I think the, the sparks is the secondary effect of mm -hmm. information, you know, coming in from a higher frequency of interaction that's at the quantum uh, mm -hmm. level. And so it's secondary. And this is why I've debated, you know, so much with, um, with uh, the approach that's typical now in um, psychiatry and neurology where uh, the idea that, like, if somebody is having an emotional issue or or some disorder, so um, the idea is to change the chemistry of the brain, and then it'll be all good. You know, um, okay, it can be like a, a useful band-aid for someone to like chill out and get a, but. Uh, changing the chemistry of the brain doesn't resolve the fundamental issue. If right. the brain, if the chemistry in the skull is out of balance, it's, it's, it's the emotional state that's producing that. Mm -hmm. If you don't resolve the emotional state, then, meaning it, it's the information that is being received by the biology that's producing that. If, if you don't change that, you're basically masking the issue. Right. Mm. Well, again, if the brain is not the source of consciousness, but is some, perhaps some, I, I still like the term, maybe I'm oversimplifying decoder, and, and we're, they're trying to treat an emotional issue by treating the brain, the emotional tumult must be also stored in water and That's the right. heart. And I want to talk about the heart as well. I mean, just, it is clear, Nassim, based primarily on your, your research and the research of others, that there is that the brain is not the source of consciousness. Mm -hmm. The question really becomes, what is it? But uh, mm -hmm. tell us another story, if you will, about people walking around, walking around thinking without a brain. Because <laughs> I think that is the fascinating thing. I mean, I was literally, and folks, just so you know, I was here at the Conscious Life Expo last year and had the pleasure of seeing the Sim speak, and uh, that was the first reference I had heard you make of this anomalous reality. Well, like I was saying, it's not that uncommon. Uh, it's common in people that have um, uh, had meningitis early on in their life, um, and um, the result is that a large portion of the brain can be basically digested uh, and, and basically disappear. Digested. Or, Explain you know, what you mean. Well, because the meningitis uh, viral um, uh, attack the brain tissues and the brain because, because um, literally is dissolved into the body um, and, and it can happen very early on uh, someone's like yeah you basically you 
if you do x-rays of these people, um, it's typically you can see the damage that was done or you can see like this person in France that a good portion of the brain or almost all the brain is missing. Um, this person in France did have meningitis as a young child. Okay. And so, um, so it was attributed to that. Okay. Uh, and so it is a common thing. Um, well, you know, it's not the only person that's ever been found to have right. this issue. Well, that was a question I wanted to ask you, just to get clarification. The individual that had the accident, the, the loss of brain matter wasn't due to the accident, right? Mm -hmm. It was based no. on a discovery because he had the accident. Right. I see. Okay, I just want to get clarification Exactly, that. because people that have <clears throat> had meningitis like especially early on you know like um, uh, in early times um, they uh, they don't necessarily take x-rays years later of right. their head or you know and so they, if they're functioning normally there's no reason for them to even think of getting an x-ray of their head so they function normally and then if they get in a car accident or something and then all That's of a sudden yeah and then it's discovered somewhere. that you know, most of their brain is missing. You know what movie comes to mind is, is it Silence of the Lambs? Oh, yes. I, you know, really, I never would I have thought, and that was, I, I can't recall the exact scene. I think everybody that's seen the movie, isn't it Silence of the Lambs where uh -huh. Anthony Hopkins is, it's a disgusting scene, but uh, the two, uh, uh, what would you call them, lab rats, essentially, where mm -hmm. he was picking up, they were awake, uh -huh. and he was removing parts of their brain. He was right. doing other things with it too. But right, perhaps right. that was an, an intimation that this is real. This can happen. Right. You know, this is a question that really is uh, kind of stunning to me. I mean, look, we know that our allopathic medicine and, and modern science admits that there's so much that they don't know about how the brain functions. Right. And, and they're really at a conundrum with people that have brain injuries in many cases. Well, as Mostly was, memory as well. Ah. Well, and that's really important. With memory. Right. We don't know where memory is stored. Well, that's what Carl Prebrim worked on, right? Uh -huh. He found that memory was not localized in any one particular area. Let's talk about that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so basically, you know, the seat of memory has not been found. And um, in certainly, um, and, and actually, you know, this paper I just published, mm -hmm. I, I modified, and excuse me, Einstein, but I, I, I did modify one of, one of <laughs> the words he coined. Uh -huh. So one of the most famous words Einstein coined is space-time. Instead of space and time, he put it together right. and called it space-time. Um, I modified it to space memory. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because, um, think about it, if time exists in the universe, Right, so if there's a, an arrow of time, there's evolution, we can see evolution, there's, there's some kind of arrow of time, um, then that means that there's memory. Because without memory, there is no time. Meaning, if you can't remember the moment prior, then you can't tell if there's a linear function in time, mm -hmm. right? So. So memory has to be a fundamental principle of, uh, of creation, meaning, um, meaning that time is not actually the thing we think about, but time is just information 
embedded on the structure of space, meaning that as we move through space, we're leaving information, like, like information on a hard drive, mm -hmm. right? Where the hard drive is the structure of space, and, and we're leaving information on this structure in terms of, literally in terms of electromagnetic fluctuations. Sure. Just like we, we, put mem we put information on the hard drive, mm -hmm. on the computer. And so then, then memory in the, you know, in the body or in the brain, if you want to think of it as a brain, is accessed, you know, as an antenna, okay. you know, in, into that place in space in which the memory was laid, right? So just like... Just like the ROM on your computer is the active memory that is actually just picking up the information off the hard drive, mm -hmm. your, your memory is actually picking up information off the structure of space-time. Your memory is not inside of you, it's actually uh, you accessing the field of information that holds that memory. Agreed. Mm. Here's the, the burning question that I have, Nassim. When you think of time, first of all, many argue that time is a construct relegated to 3D, mm -hmm. and outside of that it perhaps doesn't exist, it's simultaneous. If, how might I phrase this question? Let's make an assumption. Well, you see, what I just said makes uh, time simultaneous. Okay. Because because if no, because right. if it's information on space, it's always there. It's all all memory or parallel, past, present, and, and future. future. Right. Well, that of course would bring in pre the, the presentiment uh -huh. experiments and well precognition. Obviously. Precognition. That's right. All these fascinating stu stuff. Yeah, and it start to explain all kinds of things that um, you know are hard to explain in the in the other concept of time, in this concept of time, all of a sudden, you can explain, for instance, even um, things like um, uh, epigenetics, mm -hmm. where all of a sudden we see the genes changing, the expressions of genes changing in a person by their state of emotion. Right? So, uh, so imagine, if, if time is information on space, so it, imagine the Earth is going through space, it's making a huge spiral because the sun is moving through space. So, so it's not like making circles, it's, it's making a huge spiral in space. Imagine you're on the surface of the Earth, making a spiral with the Earth in space, right? Mm -hmm. And so you've laid a spiral of information along that timeline, you could, right? You're calling it a timeline, right? And, and you could, and, and when you're accessing information, you're basically accessing points in space where you've laid the information, which you're still connected to because you're at the end of that line of information. You're constantly leaving a trail. That's right. infinite. Yeah, you're leaving a trail, exactly. And if you go back and through that trail, you end up in the belly of your mom, right? Which connects your trail with her trail. And because your dad was inside your mom, even for a short amount of time, that connects his trail with your trail, right? Uh -huh. And actually, 
that's how the gene expression occurs. The reason why the genes have all the information of all your ancestry expressed in your body right now, which is an incredible it thing. Really, to, is something to think about. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it's not because it's all in the physical gene that is in your body. It's because they're communicating with all the trails of your ancestry through that timeline, right? And and so when you resolve something in your past, like the base of psychology, right, is to think about events that happens earlier and to try to get a different perspective on it, right? And then you feel better, mm -hmm. right? Well, um, when you're doing that, the assumption it's all happening in your head, I believe is completely wrong. And what you're doing that, you're actually accessing the information on that trail, on that on that spiral, and you're changing the information because you're changing your optics. You're changing the frame of reference on that event. Perspective, right. Your perspective on that mm -hmm. event. And you're literally changing the information which has a repercussion forward and is changing your present genes and has a repercussion backwards, changing all the genealogy of all your ancestry backwards. So you're actually resolving things. I mean, this gets pretty esoteric, but but actually well, yeah. you can think of it of physics. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about now. You're you're speaking relative to the genealogy and the link that we have and access to the information vis-a-vis -vis our genealogy. But I'm thinking of some about individuals who are picking information out of this infinite field. Mm -hmm. uh, they have access to information that's maybe on another spiral and another trajectory. Right. How would we explain that? Well, because you the, that all, the, all the time. Yeah, because that's all connected. You see, if you're okay, so you got to understand the holographic mass solution I, I wrote, right? So, in when I tried to write in physics equations to try to explain where mass come from, because. We have E equals MC squared, and it's a beautiful equation, but it says nothing about nothing, meaning all it says is that there's an equivalence between one thing and another thing. There's an equivalence between something we call energy mm -hmm. and something we call mass. Mm -hmm. But we don't know what mass is. Where does it come from? What is that? So we don't know what energy is if we don't know what mass is. So, so we have an equivalent, and we certainly don't know why the speed of light is the speed of light. So, so in that equation, there is nothing we know. We just know it's equal, right, to each other. Um, so I wanted to know what mass is. I, of course, you know, it took me 30 years to try to figure it out. But... I ended up showing that most of the mass in the universe are protons, and I, I solved the equation for the electron later on, uh, just recently. But, but you know, I, I concentrated on the proton because it's most of the mass in the universe, mm -hmm. um, and so it's the nuclei of an atom, right? The little point in the middle of the atom has most of the mass of the atom in it, and I um, I wanted to know how it got there, and and I realized that. Uh, that there's a field of information, there's a field of energy that is in the space, that the space between you and me, right, is not empty. It's, no. it's teeming. It's <laughs> teeming with energy. Yeah. We know that even 
in simple terms, in long wavelengths like radio waves, for instance. If I put a radio box between you and me and I tune the little crystal in there to the right frequency, it's going to pick up the information of a certain radio station and all of a sudden I'm going to hear it, right? right? It's in the space between you and me, but we don't hear it. Right, we don't know it's there until you tune that little crystal to that frequency. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. so the, there's you know um, background radiation from the from the background of the universe in the space between us. There's X-ray, there's microwave, there's you know all kinds of stuff right. that's there. So to think of the space as empty is not quite accurate. But what I discovered is that in quantum theory, almost a hundred years ago. When we looked at the space, we found that not only is there like all these other wavelengths, but there's one that is very fundamental. Is there's a really high frequency noise, and mm -hmm. uh, it's called vacuum energy. It's called vacuum fluctuation, and it fills the space like at like at really high energy levels, really high density. Okay, and it's but it's billions of times the wavelength is billions of times smaller than an atom. So, oh my goodness! Wow. So this can't it, imagine that. Right. It's <laughs> in fact, if you took the wavelength of the, it's called the Planck oscillator. It, That's Planck. Uh -huh. Yeah. If if you take that wavelength and you were to make that a grain of sand, then the proton would have a diameter from here to Alpha Centauri, mm. which is forty trillion kilometers. Oh wow. Yeah, I mean, so it's very small. Yeah. And so, of course, we don't experience it directly. We can't measure it directly, or we have a hard time doing that, although now we have measured it. Um, but, it but it's there. And so I, I realized this could be the fundamental pixel of the universe. This could be the fundamental building block that the universe is building everything out of. Mm -hmm. And I start, so I looked at a proton in the nuclear of an atom, and I started to count how many of these little oscillators would be in the volume of a proton. Like how much energy is in there. Uh -huh. and, and you can think of, in physics, it's, it's appropriate in, in, uh, in uh, information theory to think of each little Planck oscillator as a little bit of information, one bit, like a computer. And so I counted the bits and I got, I, I got an amazing number because the number, the, the energy or the mass of the information that's inside one proton was equivalent to all of the masses of all the other protons in the universe. Mm, oh my gosh. So imagine that. So, you, you, like a holographic structure, like exactly, you know, a holographic means that... This supports that all, the holographic model, That's for right, sure. yeah, that every point has the hole in it, right? right. And, and many philosophers and masters have said that, but now I had an equation that was showing that. And I'm like, oh, oh, that's crazy. And then I looked at the amount of information that was on the surface of the proton, and I did a relationship, a ratio between the two, mm -hmm. and when I did the ratio, it gave me the exact mass of the proton. Like exactly, so I had an equation that involves the mass of the universe in it, which is a huge number, and just by ratio to the surface, it give me a number that's, you know, 10 to minus 24 is a very small number of the proton, and nailed it. 
very, very, very precisely. I, I was able actually to to predict what the radius of the proton should be very precisely. Then it was measured in an accelerator in Switzerland, and it was confirmed. Uh, my, my solution is the most exact solution for the nuclei of an atom on the planet today. Um, the mainstream solution is 4% off from the measurement. So, so, um, so the reason I was telling you all this is that, think about this. Now, this is very precise, and it's been confirmed by experimental studies. Mm -hmm. But it's saying that all the information of everything else in the universe, all the trails that were left in the universe, is present in every one of your atoms. So you have access. There we are. Okay. You have access. So that starts to explain all kinds of phenomena that we can't explain in physics, like remote viewing. How is it that you can... Some people can remote view a place on the other side of the earth and, mm-hmm. and nail it with huge accuracy. Mm-hmm. And these things were done in laboratory. Like, there's many studies showing this is not just voodoo. You no. know, the, the, oh, gosh, no. Well, no. we know our governments have been working, you know, That's right. with, uh, yeah. with Stanford, uh, SRI. Stanford SRI, Research, exactly. Research Institute. But, right. But, Okay, so it exists, but what you're really drilling down on is why it works and how right. it works. Right, it's not it's not some esoteric like no. crazy thing. I don't think any of it is missing. I really no. do think that there is. And although I, as we were talking offline, I, I told you that my father was an MIT scientist. I am nothing of the sort, but I I respect the scientific method, particularly from your approach, because I don't think I never felt that we lived in an accidental universe. But right. the question is. Uh, with the mystery, Richard Feynman, my absolute favorite quote by him is, it does no harm to the mystery to know a little bit about it. <laughs> That's and right. you're helping us unravel the mystery a little bit. Uh, so mm-hmm. I respect this approach. Well, yeah. you know, it starts to explain all kinds of phenomena that seem completely... Like what else? So we have remote viewing, remote healing, precognition, precognition, remote healing, you know, um, the fact that like some healers can modify the tissue inside a person and you can see it in real time, you know, on, um, on radiology or even uh, on, um, on uh, various scanning devices. And, and um, of course, if you have the information of everything, then you can tap, if you tap into it, mm-hmm. assuming you can, mm-hmm. if you can tap into it, then you can have the information of what's going on in this person's body. Absolutely. And you can modify it so that, you know, we're dividing cells at million cells per, per minute, mm-hmm. right? Well, you can get the cells to start dividing in such a way that they don't continue to produce the same problem, mm-hmm. so that they resolve, right? So, or, or that they stop making cancer cells, or you know, like all of a sudden, it opens the door to something remarkable, uh, you know, which, you know, not only in terms of esoteric knowledge, all of a sudden becomes physics, but. You can imagine the technology that can emerge from that. Like if we we can make technology, this leads to technology that taps directly into that field of information, and like imagine the the miracles we can um, we can expect from that. Do you think 
Nassim, this is really the, the trillion dollar question. We know that this is way beyond esoterics. This is ancient wisdom, really. It's perennial, mm -hmm. just being articulated uh, through science and, and a brilliant, uh, elegant method that you have done. Oh, thank you. When do you feel, or if, will it hit the mainstream? Will this become, uh, replace the classical uh, sort of, you know, billiard ball, sticks and stones? approach to understanding reality. Uh, will we ever see that paradigm shift, you think? And then will we be able to apply these principles to the, the new level of human? Do you think we'll see that in our lifetime? I think so. You I do? Think, oh, yeah. I think we're really close. Um, you know, you'd be surprised uh, from, from 25 years ago when I started to present in physics. Uh -huh. If you even just said the C word, you know, the consciousness word, it was like taboo. You'd get kicked out of physics conference, you know, immediately. Isn't um, that something? Now, it's like the cool thing to do for physicists to try to figure out where consciousness, you know, fits in all the equations. Right. Um, so, I, there's a huge change happening. And, and the, it's not just philosophy, meaning technology is being worked on in laboratories that is going to confirm this stuff mm -hmm. um, and, and that is going to totally blow our mind. Like we're talking, we're talking gravity control, we're, con we're talking almost infinite amount of energy available to us. Um, so space travel, warp, warp drives. I mean, NASA has a warp drive laboratory working on building one right now. Right. You know, it, it, people you know need to know like these things are on their way. Oh, I believe that. You will. This this could segue us into a whole nother discussion, <laughs> in which we may just have to have. But what comes to mind uh, is AI, artificial intelligence, which we know. It, well, I don't want to just leave that on a limb, but our interacting with it and perhaps you know living side by side with it uh, mm -hmm. and it's very controversial but is that what you're alluding to uh, yeah uh, AI is a possibility I just don't think that AI I think AI is gonna be way different than what people visualize today yeah. even the, the, the scientists I don't think you can get to that level of um, of computing power and awareness uh, from the current hardware that's being used, mm -hmm. meaning um, I think it's going to look like much more like a plasma field interacting with this field of information, huh. you know, and so it, it's going to look much different than, you know, a semiconductor crystal oscillating. I think it's going to involve a semiconductor crystal oscillating like we have today in our computers. But um, it will be interacting with something that is much more um, based on the natural uh, dynamics that you see in nature, like like a little star, you know, uh, in the <laughs> laboratory, um, if you'd like. It, it, that's tapping into that field. So it's not, it's actually, it's artificial intelligence, but it's not, because you made an artificial tap into that field of intelligence that's present, mm. but it's actually a natural intelligence because it, it's just, you know, you could think of your body as an artificial 
tap into that right. field. Oh, you see? Oh boy, does that bring on a whole another litany of questions that I'm going to have to remember. <laughs> Listen, I know we're running out of time, and this is this has just been fascinating. Obviously, your work is worthy of hours upon hours mm-hmm. of discussion and exploration. So speaking of which, I want to talk about a little bit as we close out your resonance project, the Resonance Science Science Foundation. Foundation. Kudos for all you're doing there. Uh, Your wonderful people uh, had uh, gave me a peek. I had a chance to have a peek and boy, I can't wait to dive in when I get back to the the homestead. This is a great thing. I want everyone to check this out. Tell us about this project. It's, this is your work. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, the uh, Resonance Science Foundation has a section that's the Resonance Academy. The Resonance Academy. Yeah, and uh, in the Resonance Academy, people can take courses, mm-hmm. and we have a, a foundation course that is uh, six modules that are typically people go through it in about you know, four to six weeks. Uh And um, we have over uh, 72 countries taking the course right now. Yeah, uh, 5,000 people um, at the time. And, and, you know, we can have any any number of people taking it. And and two hours a month I come on, and um, this is an online course, and two hours a, uh, uh, a month I, I come in and people can ask me questions, and so we have this internet meeting with this all the live students. Witness him. Live witnessing. Live witnessing. I saw it. It's, it's, you got you to check this out. It's, it's so much fun. So personal, too. And, yeah. um, and then, as well, there's breakout groups mm-hmm. where um, all the community of people that are taking the courses um, are connecting mm-hmm. and can talk. And so, so people are no longer isolated right. doing their little thing, but you can connect with a global community of people that are thinking the same and that are having the same questions and you can discuss things. Mm -hmm. And so it's really fun because everybody gets to connect. And then starting this year, we're starting a yearly conference where... that's huge. Yeah, all the delegates that are taking the course are... Is it a virtual conference or in person? No, no, it's in person. So people get to come and be with me and we're going to go to sacred sites. So we're going to go... Sign me up. It's going to be Egypt this year. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to start with Egypt. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, and we're really excited about it. And um, there's only like 500-some places available, so um, you got to sign up quick. But um, we're going to be able to, um, you know, experience... the, the amazing sites, but as well experience each other. And it, it's really kind of a pilgrimage that mm-hmm. we're going on mm-hmm. um, to places that have high level of coherency and energy mm-hmm. and to like bring the life back into these places. Oh so, so I'm really excited and I have like surprise technologies as well to help us be, along with that. Oh, isn't that going to be and, and so it's going to be a lot of fun. Wow. So, yeah, we're well, excited. Well, there's a lot to be keeping tabs with you on, yeah. sir. I want to thank you so much. And I do hope, you know you're always welcome back to Higher Journeys, but uh, you're, you're information is just constantly flowing and you're having epiphanies daily it seems. (laughs) So I would love to check in with you again. Folks, Nassim Harriman, what can I say? Thank you so much for this time. I appreciate it. I appreciate it myself. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. And thanks for watching once again, everyone. Take care. It's clear that Nassim is optimistic 
that we are indeed on the precipice of a massive paradigm shift when it comes to not only understanding consciousness, but in our ability to utilize our knowledge and understanding in making the leap into new and exciting vistas. Nothing is off the table here, but in order to fully realize the magnitude of our capabilities, we must first embrace the idea that all things are possible, that we are only now glimpsing the surface of potential, and most importantly, there's not a minute to waste. It's time to dive right in. Thank you for joining me for this special on-location edition of Higher Journeys from Los Angeles. Stay tuned for another great episode filmed on-site at the 15th Annual Conscious Life Expo. Until then, I'm your host, Alexis Brooks.